For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. I've missed you. Welcome back to another Series 5 Share the Mic episode. This one is guest hosted by Nina Gabor. She's a sustainable fashion stylist, a speaker, an educator, and also the development editor of Wardrobe Crisis magazine. She writes fantastic stories over on our website, which is thewardrobecrisis.com. Now, Nina is so interesting, this one. She's in conversation with the economist Jason Hickel. He's got a new book out. It's called Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World. And ever since she did this interview, I've just been seeing Jason's name everywhere. Of course, degrowth is a hot topic too. Essentially, it's about challenging capitalism's obsession with GDP and perpetual expansion. They talk about what's the alternative and are we finally awake to the reality of climate breakdown and ecological collapse and planetary boundaries and all the rest of it. But also, what is the alternative? How can we reimagine this system and shift our priorities? There's this whole part of this chat where they talk about measuring well-being as a marker of a successful economy. They're actually doing that in New Zealand. It's so interesting. So there's a lot to sink your teeth into in this one. It's absolutely riveting. You're really going to enjoy it. But before I hand you over, some exciting news about the end of this series. We've got a couple more guest hosts lined up in this format. But can you guess who we're planning on for the closing episode of Series 5? Drum roll. (laughs) Dear listener, it's you. (laughs) How good is this? So if you'd like to be on the podcast, what you have to do is head over to The Wardrobe Crisis on Instagram or email me through our website and tell us why. So think about if I passed you the mic, what story would you love to tell? What message would you like to put out there? If you've ever fancied being on the podcast, then this is your chance. We'll also be doing a bunch of Instagram lives and reposting all the Instagram stories that are shared by our community that use the hashtags wardrobe crisis and share the podcast mic that week. So there's so many different opportunities to be involved and to share your stories with all of us. I'm really excited. I can't wait. So please get in touch and tell your friends. It's going to be so much fun. And I just can't wait to hear from you and find out who's going to be there and which stories we're going to share. Okay, I'm out of here. Over to Nina. Hello, everyone. I'm Nina Gabor for this week's Wardrobe Crisis podcast episode. I'm the founder of EcoStyles, an ethical and sustainable fashion advocate, speaker, educator, and development editor for the Wardrobe Crisis magazine. And I'm based in Melbourne, Australia. So I am super excited to welcome Dr. Jason Hickel. And we'll be talking about degrowth as an alternative economic system, inequalities in fashion, the global south, and in the global economic system. So Jason, thank you so much for joining today's Wardrobe Crisis podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So it's such a thrill to speak with you because I found you through a tweet of yours. And after seeking out and reading some of your work, it was there I discovered that like me, you're African and like me, you have a development background. But most importantly, I think we're at a time where several industries, including fashion, are kind of at an impasse where 
they're understanding the need to move forward with a post-capitalist mm. system. And that actually makes the timing for your new book absolutely perfect. <laughs> now, before we nosedive into degrowth and less is more how degrowth can save the world, which I absolutely loved, I just really want to get your personal take on the very important topic of fashion. So what's your relationship with your wardrobe like? <laughs> I guess I would say it's pretty minimalist, sadly. I mean... I don't have a whole lot of clothes, but I do like clothes and I like clothes that fit most importantly. So, and, um, yeah, mostly neutral colors, but it's funny because like, I appreciate fashion, but I mostly appreciate fashion and like really creative wild fashion on other people. I tend to pick clothes that like, I don't have to think too much about, but yeah, but I really appreciate <laughs> like <that>. Steve Jobs, <laughs> not as bad as Steve Jobs. <laughs> 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 no, not as bad as Steve Jobs, I hope. Oh, but, that's, um, that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, I definitely appreciate fashion as an art form. And I mean, I teach at an art and fashion university. And so it's all around me. And it's something I care a lot about. But it's not something that I really integrate a whole lot into my own life because I mostly just sit at home and write, really. So. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah, so you don't need like a massive wardrobe to do that. Right. Um, you said, sadly, you have a minimalist wardrobe, but that's actually quite sustainable. So it's kind of good, particularly in this sort of overconsumption world that we live in right now. So that's mm -hmm. actually a plus. Yeah. So also I like to pick clothes that are durable. And this is increasingly frustrating for me because I feel like so much of the stuff that is available, like kind of falls apart within a few months or years. And that to me is really frustrating. I try to avoid visible branding wherever possible, because I don't really want to be like a walking advertisement for people, for brands, but which is hard, like when it comes to some things, you know, like running shoes always have branding on them. That's absolutely true. That's, they do try to make us into walking adverts. Exactly. I mean, it's not enough that they do it online and on billboards and in magazines. So before we fully get into it, can you quickly define some of the terms that our audience may or may not be familiar with? You know, for example, what is degrowth? Yeah, sure. So, so degrowth is, I mean, there's lots of different ways to approach it, but I guess one interesting way is to approach it from the, from the perspective of our present ecological crisis so recognizing that our crisis is not just climate breakdown, but also other forms of ecological breakdown, deforestation, you know, species extinction, soil depletion, and so on. And so what becomes clear is that we need a planned reduction of excess resource and energy use in high-income nations designed to bring the economy back into balance with the living world, while at the same time enabling flourishing lives for all. So that's kind of degrowth in a nutshell, which is very different uh, from a recession, which is like a growth-addicted economy that fails to grow and therefore crashes apart and causes all sorts of human suffering. Degrowth is, is totally the opposite. And so that's, um, that's what makes it kind of an interesting and new idea. Okay, so the recession is just basically not living up to its own expectation, just sort of a loser economy that can't achieve its goals, basically. Yeah, basically, a recession is what happens when you have a growth-addicted economy that fails to get growth and then it collapses um, and with consequences that are particularly hard on the poor and it generates inequality and causes businesses to collapse and so on. So we don't want that. That's obviously always bad. So degrowth is about a much more intentional way of thinking about how to scale down excess resource use. And what is GDP? GDP, this is an important one. So GDP is the dominant ob objective of most of our governments to grow the GDP. It's gross domestic product. Now, crucially, it's not a measure of well-being. A lot of people just assume that GDP is like a good proxy for human well-being. It's not, and it was never intended to be. 
In fact, what it measures is the monetary value of all of the stuff we extract and produce and consume each year, kind of in a nutshell. And it also only measures like a narrow slice of the economy. It doesn't capture things like domestic labor or care or sharing or mutual aid, lots of things that we rely on in our lives. And it leaves out all sorts of negatives, right? Right. So like the social and ecological costs of economic growth are all left out of this measure. So if you cut down a forest for timber, GDP goes up, but it doesn't account for the cost of losing that forest as a sink for carbon or habitat for endangered species and so on. Do you talk about under capitalism, global GDP needs to keep growing by at least two to three percent per year, which you know, of course, it's necessary for large firms to make profits, but effectively, like 3% means doubling global GDP every 23 years. You also talk about that growth comes directly from plundering the earth, right? Exactly. So most people assume that GDP growth is a kind of slow linear growth, but in fact, it's a really rapid exponential growth that very quickly gets out of hands. And we've all learned about the power of exponential growth when it comes to like the virus that we're all suffering under right now, right? <laughs> like it can it can really quickly get out of hand when things are on a on an exponential growth cycle, and that might be fine if GDP was just plucked out of thin air, but it's not. It is very tightly coupled to resource use and energy use. So the more you grow the economy, the more resources it requires, the more energy it requires, and that ends up having a devastating impact on the living world. But the, you know, the good news is that that process is not necessary for human well-being. There's virtually no relationship between GDP growth and human well-being past a certain low point, which high-income nations have long since surpassed. So we all get behind this idea of growth is good for us, but it doesn't deliver improvements in life expectancy or you know, happiness and education and so on. Like All of that can be accomplished whether or not the economy is growing. You touched on the deforestation and in terms of things like planetary boundaries. Can you explain what they are? Yeah, it's a really important new concept in ecological science. So the basic principle is that life on this planet depends on a balance of interlocking geophysical systems. Mm -hmm. So not just the climate, but also forests and biodiversity and the chemistry of the oceans and things like that. So when we change these systems beyond a certain threshold, or a boundary, they become unstable and begin to break down. And that's kind of the situation we're in right now, where we're overshooting a number of these critical planetary boundaries. So with all the pressure put on the Earth's resources by the current capitalist system, in a nutshell, can degrowth save the world? <laughs> yes, um, it can. In fact, it's the only feasible way to stop ecological breakdown. Although I've got to say, like, I'm not a huge fan of the subtitle of the book, How Degrowth Will Save the World. I mean, I worry a little bit about, like, you know, salvation narratives. But that being said, I mean, it is, it's, it's a feasible strategy for reversing ecological breakdown. And the good news is that we can do it while at the same time improving people's lives. And that's, and that's to me very exciting. Do you think that degrowth is something that could save the fashion industry? And how do you think that would happen? Yeah, well, so it depends on what you mean by save, I guess. I mean, I think more like, like it's more like it would save us from the fashion industry in a way. Uh, <laughs> I mean, the fashion industry is interesting because it's a classic example of a sector of the economy that's basically programmed to keep growing forever, even though we don't actually need it to, right? Mm -hmm. And so over the past couple of decades, we've seen this really dramatic shift towards fashion, you know, fast fashion, really aggressive advertising, speeding up the turnover of products. And all of this has a really devastating effect, both ecologically and socially, in terms of labor exploitation and so on. 
So, you know, the fashion industry itself needs to effectively degrow. <laughs> and what's, what's interesting about this is that it could lead us to a better fashion industry, you know, one that's less ecologically destructive and less exploitative of labor. Um, and so in this sense, I think, yes, it can save the fashion industry. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in the slow fashion movement and how this might relate to degrowth. So it's similar, of course, to the slow food movements. And the idea is to focus on like local fashion designers wherever possible, you know, high quality, long lasting uh, fabrics, clothes that have culture and meaning behind them, which means that people are more likely to hold on to clothes for longer and, you know, have an emotional or, you know, meaningful connection to it. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I think that getting rid of advertising in the industry would be a huge a huge step in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one of my, my mottos is we need to get off the fashion treadmill, mm, right? Mm. Um, this might not affect you personally, but fashion is driven by trends, yes. right? Mm. In terms of consumers, I mean, growing up, all of us, one of the things we always heard, whether it was on the radio, in magazines, or in television, you'd have a fashion segment. And one of the first things they would say is, this season's trend is... And it wasn't even a question of whether or not you should follow a trend. It was more like a dictatorship where you are supposed to wear this particular color or garment this particular season or else you're not okay. And I think that recently, you, know, you, talk, you mentioned fast fashion. I think that fast fashion has taken that notion and exacerbated it. Mm -hmm. With fashion at the moment, another thing that's really popular is the circular economy, right? Um, so... Fashion is producing, I think, around 150 billion garments a year or something like that. And so there's this notion among some communities that if we were just to recycle everything, then it would be a solution. What do you think about that? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of circular economy thinking. We definitely need to make our economy more circular and the fashion industry as well. But there's a couple things to think about here. First of all, a circular economy is not compatible with a growth-oriented economy, right? So mm -hmm. the fashion mm -hmm. industry, for example, if we made the fashion industry more circular, that would actually be inimical to the perpetual expansion of the industry. Why? Because expansion requires uh, pulling more resources and energy into the system. And what a circular economy does is it basically pushes you to operate with the existing quantity of resources and energy in the system which is good, but it's not compatible with growth. So yes, let's be more circular. But to get there, we have to abandon our obsession that the industry, you know, sh should grow perpetually, which it doesn't need to. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the crucial thing to understand is that, yeah, like, let's push for gains in recycling. But what that also does is it makes garments more expensive, because it's more expensive to recycle, you know, than it is to extract, you know, virgin materials from the earth. And so that, you know, that too is kind of inimical to the, the perpetual hunt for profit and growth. And that's okay. <laughs> we should be okay with that. Another thing I was thinking about with regards to degrowth is that why attempt to change the entire global economic system? I mean, why not just like put a few, slap a few regulations on capitalism, you know, a few restrictions to keep it getting out, well, it's already gotten out of hand, but to limit that as much as possible. Yeah, I'm definitely not against a more regulatory approach. That's clearly important. But I think that the key thing to realize here is that this more mainstream approach has never accomplished a total reduction in resource use. <laughs> and so it's not working, right? Now, of course, we could choose to go for even tougher regulations. But the reason that no politician would ever do that is precisely because it would pose a threat to growth. 
And growth is sacred in our economy. Like it's not possible to question it. So we have to go deeper. We have to reject growthism itself and think about how to liberate our economy from growth imperatives. So the first step would be to, you know, abandon GDP growth as an objective in the economy and get past the irrational assumption that all sectors of the economy have to grow all the time, regardless of whether or not we actually need them to. So it makes much more sense to have an open democratic conversation about scaling down, you know, ecologically damaging and socially less necessary industries, right? So we can scale down fast fashion, we can scale down SUVs and private jets and McMansions and industrial beef and advertising and planned obsolescence and so on, right? Like we don't need those things. And we but should... Jason, wouldn't our lives be empty if we scaled it all down? Like, what would we do? I mean, we become so accustomed to social media and, and SUVs and beef and McDonald's and all the other bad stuff. Like, what would life be like for us if we did that? I mean, what would you basically, how would we fill the void is what I'm saying. Yeah. No, that's, it's an interesting question. But to me, to me, that's exactly what's so inspiring about degrowth is that when you think about all of the needless production that our economy generates, that again is totally irrelevant to actual human uh, human need or well-being or anything like that. Like it's not only a profound ecological waste, but also a profound waste of human lives, right? So, and this is in two senses. First, in the sense of the people that I mean, take fast fashion. Like it's clearly a massive waste of ecosystems to churn through. Oh my gosh! So much, epic. Uh, so much fabric and water and chemicals and so on. But also, it's a tremendous waste of human of the human lives that have to do all that labor, right? So. The people that are that are sewing the garments in places like Bangladesh, etc., like that's I mean, imagine the the mountain of human life that is thrown away on clothes that are designed to be thrown away. Yeah, uh, that is morally repugnant, right? But also, <laughs> like our own lives have been so co-opted by the imperatives of consumption because of the pressure of advertising, which is very insidious. That um, it basically colonizes our free time, right? So even when we're not yeah. working. In our free time, we are under the this imperative to consume the stuff that we we make during the day, effectively, right? So we can never really escape this exploitation in the broader sense. And I think that what what's powerful about degrowth is that it liberates us from that and allows us to to have more time, to slow down, to enjoy our relationships, to be more creative, to uh, spend time in our communities, to connect with each other, and so on. And that's powerful. That's really beautiful. I'm so glad you said that because that's a narrative that isn't very often talked about. Um, so the emphasis is always on, of course, you know, the garment workers and um, resources that are being plundered from the planet to make fast fashion and so on. But there isn't a lot of emphasis on the consumer themselves, on how it's a waste of their own personal life to focus on those things that are so transient and sort of meaningless in the scheme of things. Yeah, there's that. And also, I think that it's like, I teach undergraduate students, right? And what I've mm-hmm. noticed over the past years in my teaching career is that students are increasingly like riddled with anxieties. And it's, it seems like more every year, there's more of this. And I think a lot of it has to do with them being bombarded by advertising and other pressures on social media yeah. to be a certain way, dress a certain way, consume Absolutely. a certain way, etc. And um, that takes a, a significant toll. Um, it does. You know, like our young people are not living their fullest lives because they're under this extraordinary pressure to consume. And that's that's not the kind of civilization we want to live in. No, it's not. It's not. Um, so one of the things I do as well, um, I'm something, I do something called eco-styling. 
which is basically teaching people how to wear clothes as sustainably as possible. But um, I do stuff with high school kids as well. And a big part of my job is getting them to sort of detach from the social media notion of what fast fashion brands want them to live. So for example, one thing is that you're not supposed to be seen on social media wearing the same outfit twice. So ridiculous. So in our community, in the sustainable fashion community, those of us who focus on the fashion part, one of the things we try to do is styling challenges, right? Where, you know, five different or seven different ways to wear one particular garment so it doesn't look like the same thing. Yeah. You know, so it's like we constantly have to play these sort of mind games against the advertising and the marketing strategies. Need I mention billion dollar <laughs> advertising um, strategies of these fast fashion companies to try and reverse all of that. So... How would a degrowth scenario work in countries in a global south? So degrowth is primarily for countries that have exceeded their fair share of planetary boundaries, right? So that's all high-income nations, more or less. So the U.S., Western Europe, Australia, Canada, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, it also does include some global south countries that are in this category, like China is increasingly like this as well, and say Chile, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some nations that are kind of in that category as well, but or Saudi Arabia, maybe, which is heavily reliant on kind of American-style suburbs increasingly. Right, Um, yeah. But the main thing is that degrowth in the North, I see as a kind of call for decolonization in the South as well, or like a process of decolonization Mm. in the South. And the reason is because the vast majority of the excess resources that are consumed in the global North are actually extracted from the South, right? Uh, there's a huge net flow of resources from the global south to the global north every year. And that's what sustains the high levels of income and consumption in high-income nations. And that's deeply exploitative and ecologically destructive. So basically, the global north is like outsourcing the ecological impact of their excess consumption to the global south, right? And you can see that in the form of like the deforestation that's happening in the Amazon and in Indonesia, mm-hmm. And the coltan mines in the Congo, where the stuff for our phones comes from, et cetera, et cetera. So degrowth in the North is a process of like releasing the South from that extractivist pressure. And that's crucial to allowing them to refocus their resources and labor around supplying their own domestic needs. And so it's profoundly liberatory in that sense. And degrowth is, um, you know, as a movement is aligned in solidarity with the global South in this sense. And that's, mm-hmm. I think, quite crucial. Yeah. And also aligned with the planet in terms of harmony. Um, So, Jason, you are based in London, which is obviously one of the financial centers of the Global North, but you weren't born there. So tell us about your home country, Eswatini, and what it was like growing up there in the 80s, 90s? Yeah, in the 80s and 90s, yeah. It was... (laughs) You know, I think about it a lot. Um, it, it was important to me, actually, very, a very formative experience. Uh, mm-hmm. And it was a totally different world to what I then experienced in the States when my family ended up moving there and what I live with here in the UK. I grew up in a rural village. You know, most people there lived as subsistence farmers. It was a very simple life. Like we lived in a small, basically breeze block and tin roof house <laughs> that meet our needs. And we were like, wow. we were incredibly oh happy. We lived a very, yeah, it was extraordinary. And so my world was like constituted by that kind of simplicity. And when I moved to the States, it was a real shock, I have to say. Um, <laughs> Bombarded by overconsumption? Yeah. Too much of everything? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure that living in Swaziland, I ever really saw a single advertisement, for example, as a kid. Wow. Um, 
So yeah, so moving to the States was a huge shock in that sense. But I mean, of course, Swaziland is not like a romantic, idyllic situation. I mean, obviously, it was a colonized country. Yeah. And to this day, you know, suffers from the forces of neocolonization. Mm-hmm. Like most African nations. Yeah, exactly. And so it has real it has real problems, and there is significant suffering there. And Swaziland is wrapped up into the global garment industry as well. And um, Oh, I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, a huge percentage of the, well, at least up until recently, uh, a huge percentage of the workforce in Swaziland was in the garment industry. Right, okay. Do you go back there? Yeah, I do. Um, it's been a few years now, but I used to go back every couple of years just to reconnect with old friends and yeah, see how things are going. I mean, I'm assuming that those are the sort of experiences that got you interested in economics. Yeah, exactly. Right. So the process of kind of moving from Southern Africa to the States really like sharpened my awareness of global inequality. And ever since that moment, really, like I became obsessed with this idea of trying to understand how some countries in the in the world became so rich and others um, have been made so poor. And the answer to that lies in basically a 500-year-long history of, of capitalism, going back to the 1500s uh, with the rise of colonization and the slave trade. And that's like, it's impossible to understand what's happening in our economy today without understanding the roots in that deep history. So that's kind of what my research is focused on. Absolutely. This is one of the reasons why I value your work so much, because it feels like you go into the historical, you, you're really trying to find the root cause, right? So more of a 360 perspective, if you look at it from the very beginning, the historical view, as well as all those little nuances that aren't typically considered whenever solutions are put forward. And I think that's probably why these problems have persisted. So is there a lack of diversity in mainstream economics and academia, do you think? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah, huge lack of diversity. And we can see this in a couple of ways, actually. Um, The first is kind of the obvious way, which is that people of color are extremely underrepresented in economics departments and among degrees awarded by economics departments. So I mean, I don't know the UK stats, but in the US, it's which is probably pretty similar, only 6% of economics faculty are people of color, Right. whereas people of color make up 40% of the US population. So that's a huge disparity. Yeah. Um, and only 15% of the degrees awarded in economics go to people of color, which again is significantly below the, uh, the national proportion. So no, it's a deeply imbalanced system in that respect, but also... Another thing is that certain perspectives are like systematically excluded from the discipline. If you want to succeed in economics, you have to publish in a handful of very specific journals. But to get into those journals, you have to basically toe the the kind of orthodox line, right? Mm-hmm, right. So the discipline is totally hostile to heterodox approaches. If you take a more critical view of like mainstream approaches, then you're basically sidelined and don't get a lot of exposure. Oh, wow. That's a real shame. You know, I there's some of your research and data that I'd like to mention with regards to climate in- injustices and inequalities in Less is More. So you stated some data from 2010 that 98% of deaths from climate breakdown happen in the global south. And what makes this even more shocking is that the global north is responsible for 92% of damage caused by climate breakdown through overshoot emissions. Now, 
Countries in the global south, Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East, are only responsible for 8%. So obviously this is a massive, massive inequality because rich countries will only suffer 1% of climate-related deaths. Yes. And on the financial side, the global south bears 82% of, of climate breakdown, which in 2010 was $571 billion, which is now projected to be... $954 billion by 2030. Yeah. So clearly there's a significant amount of, of research as well that shows that more women in the global south die from disasters than men, and that includes climate disasters. And they also suffer more economically and so on. So my question is, considering women in the global south bear the biggest brunt for climate and other disasters, women of color and women of the global south um, being disproportionately impacted by climate and um, unequal economic systems. What are your thoughts on lack of representation of these women in top-level decision-making, you know, where global economic systems and international trade and global political decisions are being made? Mm, it's such a good question, Nina. So in terms of decision-making structures when it comes to global economic policy, it is crazy how it operates. So take the World Bank and the IMF, which are two of the most important institutions when it comes to determining the rules of the global economy. Yeah. Um, these are deeply anti-democratic institutions where the U.S. has veto power over all major decisions. Mm -hmm. And the G8 countries, basically the U.S. and its Western allies, yeah. um, has more than half of the vote, right? Mm -hmm. So the entire global south, which has 85% of the world's population, has a minority share of voting power in these institutions. It's effectively a form of apartheid, right? And if this was wow. true in any, you know, national parliament, we would be outraged. We would call yeah. it apartheid. It's a clear racial injustice. And yet yeah. it operates in a normalized way at the very center of the global economy. And that's a real problem because the people that are, that are most affected by the decisions made in these bodies have the least say over how they play out. And that's true also, not just in the World Bank and IMF, but also in the World Trade Organization, which governs, amongst other things, the fashion industry. In the World Trade Organization, bargaining power is determined by market size. And what that means is that the countries that became rich during the colonial era now get to determine the rules of international trade, which they primarily do in their own interests, right? So... And this is a key reason why, why the global economy is today so unequal is because global South countries, you know, barely get a look in into these deeply, you know, anti-democratic institutions. And that, you know, if we ever want to see a, a more equitable global economy, I mean, that's going to have to change. Yeah. So with this global apartheid, I mean, is the wool being pulled over our eyes? I mean, is this something that is it a situation that exists because not enough people are aware of it? I mean, how can we get more women and people of color into leadership positions within economics and into some of these positions? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the crucial thing is that, you know, we, we have to democratize these institutions, but also we have to have like, you know, more open elections for leadership positions. Right, right now, you know, the head of the World Bank and the IMF are selected by the US and Europe. But we know that Nigeria, for example, has a number of very accomplished female economists mm -hmm. who could very easily do that job, right? And, yeah. the, and in fact, in many cases, global South countries have put forward, you know, such candidates only to have them basically 
sidelined and rejected. So, I mean, that's the kind of imbalance we would have to change. But yeah, I would say like, look, today, some of the most interesting economists in the world are women. <laughs> yeah. and, and they're changing things. I mean, they're, they're fundamentally challenging core assumptions in the discipline that have stood unexamined for too long, right? And that's true in the UK and US as well, like with people like Kate Rayworth and yeah. Mariana Mazzucato and Stephanie Kelton and, and so on, who are some of the, the key voices in challenging orthodox perspectives. So yeah, I mean, I think that it's essential to bring the perspectives of feminist economists and economists from the global south into our debates. And if, you know, like you mentioned, some of the economists from female economists from the global south have been put forward into some of these positions and been rejected how do we move forward from that how do we progress from that yeah i mean to me this is the kind of thing that's that requires a kind of organized movement right i think that i mean and of course for decades global south representatives have tried to put pressure on the world bank and imf and wto to to democratize and for the most part that has not come to fruition so I think that what's essential is that people in the global north have to align with these struggles, add their voices, and do what's necessary to, to push fundamental transformation. We need united fronts on this question because it's something that affects all of us. Yeah, it certainly does. Is that something you've been a part of? Have you been a part of this movement in trying to reduce this gap? Yeah, to some extent. Um, I mean, I, I work with economists and social movements in the global south, and I, you know, I know this is something that has long been one of their core demands. And it's something that I, I try to support as much as possible. I mean, Swaziland is a great example. Like, Eswatini is too poor, basically, to pay a permanent staff in Geneva to argue for their interests in the World Trade Organization. And that is, that's devastating for them because it means that uh, they, they barely get a voice when it comes to the very trade rules that decide their fate, including the fates of the garment workers that are employed in Eswatini. So... Um, yeah, so I mean, you know, over and over again, these systems are deeply problematic and need to be fundamentally yeah. challenged. Okay. So you talked about inequalities being designed deliberately into the global economic system. So I would like for you to unpack this quote of yours, if you are willing. Colonialism may have ended a half a century ago, but those old patterns of plunder continue to this day with ruinous consequences. To the extent that degrowth in high-income nations releases global South communities from the grip of extractivism, it represents decolonization in the truest sense of the term. I think you've covered a little bit of this in a previous question, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so there's a couple of dimensions to this. The first is, as I mentioned before, you know, the global North relies on a significant net appropriation of raw materials from the global South. Yeah. By net appropriation, I mean like they take way more than they give back in trade, right? So in the region of 10 to 12 billion tons of raw materials per year, which, wow. you know, the consequences of that extraction all happen in the global south. But there's also the question of climate change, which you mentioned earlier, whereby, like, our atmospheric commons have been effectively colonized by the global north. So the global north has a significant responsibility to reduce its emissions much faster than the global average, right, given their historical responsibility for this problem. Now, the only way to do that quickly enough is to scale down excess you know, production and consumption in the global north in order to reduce energy demands and enable a really rapid transition to renewables. And so in that sense, like if we want to decolonize atmospheric space, then uh, the global north taking its climate responsibilities seriously is absolutely essential. And the only way to do that is with some kind of degrowth approach. So yeah, so I think that in terms of both resources and emissions, 
ultimately our, our ecological crisis is colonial in character. And we need to have that as a core part of our analysis. Yeah, we do. Now, in terms of like exploitation of garment workers, right? Fashion is this huge, monstrous, massive beast that thrives on it. Do you think it's even conceivable that we can in some way have responsible or sustainable businesses that still make the same level of profits? And if not, how are we going to persuade the people at the top to change? <laughs> besides movements, besides aligning ourselves yeah. with movements. <laughs> so, yeah, so let's see. Um, well, if we had a system where, where garment workers were paid fair wages, then clearly clothes in the US and UK, et cetera, would not be as cheap. Okay. And the industry would not grow at the same speed. But as I see it, that's okay. Like we should like that should not be the criteria according to which we judge the moral rectitude of a decision like this. So um, there's been some interesting research. Like you could basically triple the wages of garment factory workers, and that would lead to something like a five to ten percent increase on the cost of garments in the global north. Wow. Now, um, okay. Most people would probably not even notice that difference, actually. Yeah, uh, and so, so true. <laughs> um, from that perspective, the, the imperative is very clear. And probably, I would actually advocate for even more than tripling the wages of garment factory workers. I would, I would want to see something like a global minimum wage system applied, right, where everybody is guaranteed a fair wage according to local conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that would mean is that you know, clothes would be more expensive. Fast fashion would be virtually impossible, I think in such a scenario. And that's okay. Like we would consume fewer clothes and garment workers would be paid better wages. That to me sounds like a win-win situation, actually. The only losers are going to be like the Zaras and the Gaps and the H&Ms that presently profit prodigiously from the status quo. Yeah. Um, So this actually leads into my next question about austerity, because, you know, you talk about if we had like a universal income and in your book, you talk about, you know, people working less days and having more time and energy for things of higher value, like community connection and so on. You know, getting people, I'm trying to say this as nicely as possible. I feel like effectively we've been sort of brainwashed as societies to be dependent on things that we don't need, obviously. So I feel like it would be such a gargantuan task to kind of unpack that with people in terms of get people, stop people from being addicted to social media and that consumption pattern. Do you think it's possible, even possible for that to do it? Because I mean, you'd be, you'd have effectively like a world of people who are going cold turkey (laughs) like drug addicts right trying to quit a drug i mean i just i don't know what that what would that be like like how do you think we could overcome that yeah that's interesting um yeah and, and you know to me like the comparison to drugs is actually really is really powerful because we know that like social media algorithms are basically designed to addict us as much as possible. Right? Yes. And, yeah. And that's a problem. Like we regulate all sorts of addictive substances and yet we have no regulation on like the addictive properties of our phones and our, and our social media platforms. And, that's, and to me, that's a big problem. Now, here's the thing. Okay, so take the fashion industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some people might find it difficult to imagine a life without lots of fashion. Oh, yes. Uh, oh, but yeah. here's the thing for me is that fashion doesn't actually have to be consumerist. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not an expert in this area, but I, but again, I teach at Goldsmiths, and Goldsmiths students are fashionistas, but they're also mostly working class and very diverse. And so, what's interesting is that, like, this is not a sort of corporate fashion world. 
at Goldsmiths. These students are super fashionable, but they don't have a lot of money. And so what you see on campus is like a really creative fashion that emerges as people use what's available in thrift stores and uh, recycle their clothes and mix and match and things like that. And they're totally cutting edge and they set trends for London and yet almost entirely outside of kind of the corporate's you know, marketing world. So that's interesting to see. Yeah. And, and this to me brings up a, an, inter- an interesting point, right? Is that like when it comes to all forms of art, people are most creative when they operate within limits, right? So a painter uh, has to create magic on a canvas that is bounded, okay? And a pianist has to create magic on a set number of keys. And the glory that emerges from painting and piano and so on all happens within this limited space, because like limits force creativity. And I think that's true also of, of fashion. Like right now, you know, as you pointed out, we live in a world where fashion is effectively dictated by corporations from above. And yeah. there's nothing creative about that anymore. No, uh, no. And so like to the extent that fashion is about creativity in a kind of degrowth scenario where we're scaling down the throughput of fashion by, I don't know, 80%, let's say, then, you know, that doesn't mean we, ha- we don't have access to fashion. We can still be creative and innovative, but just within the confines of limits. And to me, that is actually more interesting. Okay. So you mean there are people like your students at Goldsmith and some of us in this community who are already living a degrowth lifestyle? I think to some extent, curve. yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> at least they point the way to like what, uh, to what you know, an What's alternative possible? kind of fashion could look like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing um, with degrowth, right? And I've had these conversations with so many people, whether online or in person. When people just hear that word, it's actually quite polarizing, which I'm sure you've experienced quite a lot. Because it sounds like austerity, it sounds like socialism, it sounds like, you know, we're being stripped of our beloved material possessions. And if we implemented a degrowth scenario, we'd all have to like get rid of everything and live like Buddhist monks. And that's freaking <laughs> scary for a lot of people, particularly in the fashion industry, where we're just so used to like colors and style and things and shoes and all of that. So can you basically debunk that myth that degrowth is about socialism and what it actually is? Yeah, okay. So first, let me, let me take on this thing of austerity. It's interesting because, in fact, austerity is a feature of capitalism, right? And so it's odd that degrowth, the people would assume this is a feature of degrowth. In fact, it's the opposite. So right. what is austerity? Austerity is when governments slash spending on healthcare and education and public transportation and other kind of goods that are really essential for human welfare. And the reason they do that is because they want to pressure people to, to be more productive, to work and produce more, et cetera, et cetera. So um, austerity is effectively what a growth-dependent economy does to pressure people to participate more in growthism. Uh, degrowth is the opposite, because what degrowth proposes is that by investing in public goods like healthcare and education and public transportation, et cetera, et cetera, then we can actually ensure that people have access to the resources they need to live flourishing lives uh, and therefore render additional growth unnecessary. And so degrowth is in fact about abundance. Now, if this sounds like a contradiction, then it's simply because people don't understand what growth is. So growth, is, you know, we, we take this to be such a natural, a natural thing, like plants grow, children grow, like obviously growth is so obviously good. But what is growth really about in a capitalist economy? It is about the, the expansion and perpetual accumulation of capital. 
which requires exploitation and extraction, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the part that we want to degrow. We want to degrow the capital accumulation part of the society. Yeah. And we want to expand the parts of the society that are organized around human welfare and flourishing and community and, and ecology. So it's just, a, it's just really important to understand you know, what growth is under capitalism yeah. and then reject the idea that we need more of that. I'd like you to do two things. First of all, paint a picture for us of what a post-capitalist society might look like. Because, you know, we're sort of a fashion crowd. We like colors, we like <laughs> images. <laughs> Make it pretty. Um, and then secondly, give us a few clear and specific pathways that can help us transition to that. Okay, yeah. So post-capitalist society. So in order to understand what that might be, I think the first important thing is to understand what capitalism is. People quite often think that capitalism is about you know, trade and markets and things like that. But crucially, things like trade and markets existed long before capitalism was on the scene. Right, uh, okay. Capitalism is only about 500 years old. So what is distinctive about capitalism is that it's a system that's organized around perpetual capital accumulation. That's why we call it capitalism. And to do that requires exploitation from labor and extraction from the living world. And crucially, it requires taking more from labor and from nature than you give back in return. So in other words, it's a system that cheapens human lives and cheapens non-human lives, or what we call nature. And so it's no surprise that this system generates perpetual crises of social inequality and ecological breakdown. So a post-capitalist society is the opposite of that. It's a system that's based on reciprocity rather than extraction. And by reciprocity, I mean reciprocity with each other and with the rest of the living world, right? So it's an economy that's organized around human flourishing and ecological regeneration rather than around perpetual capital accumulation. So, you know, what does that look like in real life? Well, you know, imagine uh, that the parts of the economy that are most important for human well-being are decommodified, right? So in other words, imagine having universal access to high-quality healthcare, education, public transportation, affordable housing, you know, healthy local food from farms that practice regenerative agriculture. Um, like, imagine all the stuff that's necessary for your welfare, and then imagine that we all have guaranteed universal access to those things. Imagine how that would change our society. Like, it would totally transform the way our communities operate. It would transform the incentives in the economy and so on. Yeah, crime rates go down and... Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, so, and, and then also imagine that we have like a living wage for everybody who works and thereby we effectively end labor exploitation. And imagine that we have a reciprocal relationship with nature so that we regenerate the land instead of simply extract from it, right? And a good example of this is take the agriculture industry. Like right now we have industrial approaches to agriculture which are based on you know, super chemical intensive extractive processes that degrade the soils and kill off biodiversity and destroy insect habitats and so on. But then on the other hand, we have, you know, regenerative farming practices that have been developed by indigenous people and by communities in the global south for many generations that actually, um, that use polyculture techniques and restore life into the soils and sequester carbon and produce healthy natural food. And that's totally the opposite. That's a system that gives back to the lands and restores the lands rather than simply taking from the land. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about here when I think about reciprocity with nature. 
Wow, I that was a beautiful picture. I'm literally swooning right now, just thinking about it. <laughs> How far away are are we from this? Do you think we are far in some crucial respects? Uh, in the sense of you know what what I've just painted for you is is kind of the opposite of our existing economic system. A million light years away. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, there are lots of sort of promising little points of light on the horizon. The first thing is that there is huge and growing interest in these ideas, right? I think that people on some deep level recognize that the existing system is not working, is hugely destructive to both human beings and to, you know, non-human beings. And nobody wants to live in a system where that's the case, where consumption patterns in our daily lives rely on brutal exploitation of people in other parts of the world. Not even the billionaires? Yeah. <laughs> we clearly want something different. Um, so that's one thing. Like, there's a lot of, there's like a groundswell of interest in this. The other thing is that, you know, just last year, New Zealand's not too far from you, the prime minister there pledged to remove GDP growth as an objective for her government's budget and shift to focusing on human well-being instead. And that's a huge step. And um, when that was announced, it like it was a huge deal on social media, totally inspiring. Um, the prime ministers of the first minister of Scotland and the prime minister of Iceland immediately decided to follow suit. And what that points to is that um, oh, by the way, these these countries are all led by women. Yeah. <laughs> and what that points to is the fact that this ideological lockdown we have on growthism is beginning to crumble a little bit and new possibilities are now becoming thinkable. And to me, that's really inspiring. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis patron community and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles and special access. Because I love you